0: Hello and welcome to 4th Estate, a show about journalism. We are coming to you from 2SER in Sydney on the Gadigal lands of the Eora Nation, right across Australia on the Community Radio Network and directly to your device across the globe via podcast. I'm Marlene Even. How has the Australian population changed over the years? Have many Australians moved to regional areas? Where have rent prices soared and how many of us speak another language? Yes, you guessed it, I'm talking about the newly released 2021 census. This week, journalists have been reporting on the intriguing snapshot of Australia with critical analysis and infographics to boot. There are many stories to be told within the data of the census and that data can be presented in interactive and beautiful ways. We've seen a lot of data-driven journalism in the media in recent years, from crunching the election numbers to census maps to the COVID-19 curve. This week, we're chatting with data journalists about the changes in their industry and the craft of communicating complex data with their audiences. To answer all this and more, we are joined by Juliet O'Brien, a data and digital journalist and author. Juliet created the website covid19data.com.au, tracking the transmission of COVID-19 in Australia. Juliet, welcome to Fourth Estate. Thanks for having me. And we are also joined by Nick Evershed, the Data and Interactives Editor at Guardian Australia. Welcome, Nick.
1: Hi.
0: And Wes Mountain, the Multimedia Editor at The Conversation. He is an illustrator, cartoonist and writer. Welcome to Fourth Estate.
2: Thanks for having me. Great to be here.
0: Now, the Australian census, I'm imagining, is like data journalist Christmas Day. So in preparation of this release, are you looking at data with a story or idea already in mind, or how do you go about sourcing a story from the census?
1: Yeah, I mean, I can answer that. Um, I'm just going to say from the get-go, though, like, The census is like in equal parts amazing but also very frustrating um because you don't actually get the best access to data on day one which is incredibly frustrating because that's when the most attention is on it and when all the headlines are written um so we we won't get like the best information about census data until um table builder actually comes out and the associated functionality that comes out at the same time and that's when you can actually not just look at you know the number of people in an area but also look at of those people you know how many had a high school education and were also male or female and x y and z um so when when that comes out you can actually do cross tabulation which we can't right now so what we have right now is great and interesting but um for the most part it's kind of like incremental change on long-term trends um and then of course because it was done in the middle of the pandemic there's that aspect to it as well and that's probably the most interesting interesting thing this time around is to see how the middle of the pandemic uh differs from 2016. um so that was kind of like our first thoughts when we were preparing for the data release was like you know looking at tree changes um People getting out of the cities, um, looking at income, that sort of stuff that might have been affected by, you know, all all of the things that happened um, in the pandemic. I guess.
2: Yeah, if I might jump in um, about, about that as well for how we looked at it at the conversation. It's um, obviously it, it's a similar issue to what Nick was talking about in that um, a lot of the people that we would get to speak on, you know, to write on these uh, as academic experts are waiting for those bigger um, drops where they can actually do the kind of, you know interesting um demographic changes in specific areas or you know areas that they've done long-term research in um which is the same thing that happens with hilda data as well you know the the drop the drop on day one is super interesting and as nick was saying is when everybody is super interested in it um but the really interesting stuff comes out gradually over time um and you know we we had someone commenting uh, there's also a kind of a a way in which people can be wondering why we're not looking at the right data on day one. Um, so we had someone commenting, saying, you know, why are you not telling us about all of the genders of people who have filled out the census? And it, it's well, we, we can't because they don't have that question as part of the census. <laughs> um, and this is this is the time when people who might not otherwise be interested in big data are, are briefly for a really short period of time. It'd be nice to be not not so controlled by how how constrained the data is initially.
1: One, one other example is I had a colleague of mine ask me um, where the homeless statistics were um, because there is a, a very good data set which comes out called Estimating Homelessness in Australia based on census data, but it actually won't be out until 2023, I think, um, based on the ABS website. So um, yes, it'll it'll be quite some time before we see some, some specific things, I guess.
0: So definitely the spotlight is on now, but all the hard work is is coming up in the future. Now, while we've got the spotlight on big data and analyzing it, Juliet, I'd like to go to you to to discuss your website that you created, covid19data.com.au. So when you created this website and it presents the latest COVID cases and transmissions, can you tell us about how it started and, and why you created this to begin with? Sure.
3: It's really interesting, you know, what Nick and Wes were just saying about um, how fleeting attention can be, and that's what happens with COVID, and that's the reason why I ended up in this position, which was that the, the problem with data is this intersection between, you need the intersection between people's attention and the actual data, and that's the time when you can kind of catch the wave Um, and actually get into people's kind of heads and everything. And so that's what I ended up doing with COVID, except the wave lasted two years and I was not expecting it to last that long when I started it. Um, So I was in the newsroom at the Herald uh, desk editor on the breaking news desk uh, for that particular shift and um, wanted to put a little chart in a story uh, when we had about 40 cases across Australia and the chart didn't exist Um, and the data didn't really well the the historical data didn't exist Uh, I think every night the federal government would update their snapshot page so um, you know to get that nice line you had to keep track of the cases yourself Um, so I started doing it and um, I had this gorgeous little uh, google doc spreadsheet and I was tracking every single case line by line and it was like female 40s overseas acquired, from, you know, wherever. And that was actually handy because that then showed that at that time, and this was why it sort of went viral on Twitter, it, it was the first time that it showed that um, we still have borders open to the US, but most cases had come in from the US. Um, so that that's really how it started. I, I intended to do it for and with the Herald um, so it was set up in the infrastructure that infrastructure that the Herald was using at the time so into infograms um and that was nice because it's just a live uh infogram updates every few seconds so as the Google Docs spreadsheet was updated the charts could be embedded all over the place and updated but then um you know it was kind of fairly assessed that um if with exponential growth of cases comes exponential growth of a google doc spreadsheet and also workload of a casual um so i chucked it on a week site and shared it with 500 twitter followers on the same weekend that scott morrison was encouraging people to go see the sharks and then it went viral and then um you know i turned two years older i woke up and You know, that was (laughs) two years had gone. Um, But look, you know, there were some pretty huge lessons in in all of it. And I guess one is this issue of not waiting for the sort of official source to come through with the goods, which is essentially what um, my editors wanted to do at first. They were waiting for our own version of Johns Hopkins. And so it's also this question of, what do you do when you've got imperfect data or um, and do you let that stop you from covering the story or do you just try to tackle it anyway and, you know, trust that you can communicate the caveats to people?
0: And I mean, that's a great question of like, what do you do when you don't have that imperfect data or when um, that it's it's still being accumulated and it's still being analysed? Do you still use it and then do you communicate to your audience, like we've got this data, here are the issues, this is what you should keep in mind. And Nick, what's your thoughts on this?
1: Yeah, I mean, like we we've had a few projects over the years that that have relied on I, I guess, you know, trying trying to get around this problem of there not being an official data set for something that, you know, arguably maybe there should be. And uh yeah, like Juliet found then often you just need to get out there and do it yourself because no one else is going to do it necessarily so i mean we've had situations like that with um deaths in custody for example we we maintained a deaths in custody database for a long time which we're now doing in partnership with um jambana at uts but and then similar things with um you know a a few other projects over the years as well and you know if you wait for the government to do it, or if you wait for a research group to do it, it, it might not necessarily happen. So if you if you want to do the story, sometimes you just have to spend a long, long time uh doing it yourself with with some help, of course.
3: I reckon um Nick and the Guardian are like leaders in that way. Like I saw um I saw someone in the state say the most powerful data journalism they've ever done was counting, literally just counting, right, like nothing, no crazy sort of modelling or anything. If you can just count stuff like, for instance, gun deaths or something, um, that's powerful. And, yeah, like The Guardian is doing that interesting tracking of deaths in custody and so on, which I think is really, it shines a sustained spotlight on the issue.
1: Yeah, I know it's it's definitely an issue in the US as well with shootings. Um at, at one point there was like multiple media databases of of police shootings, but no official database. Um it was like Washington Post, I think, and Guardian US mm. both both had them for for quite a while. Um yeah, because they would mm. maintain it federally.
3: That word tracking, I reckon, I see that more and more. Like we're tracking this and we're tracking that. I can that's where it's at,
2: and with the work you guys have done with the the deaths in and custody stuff um I think the the thing that's so powerful about that uh, is the stories side of it as much as anything you know it's about it's about counting but it's also about making sure that the, the stories are there um, and and personalizing it um obviously you know that, but it as an outsider consumer um you know that that adds so much uh it's a different obviously it's a different picture for us at the conversation because we're often dealing with academic um sources uh we're often dealing with government-based sources um there are few occasions where we've been chasing up stuff ourselves, or relating to big i suppose similar to that problem of the the locally reported gun death stuff in the u.s um, where we're pulling together different data sources to kind of pull them together and and make that comparison but um yeah it's, it's rare that we're dealing with uh, actually kind of going out and getting data ourselves. It's something something we try and do more and more, and look more and more to academics who have interesting data sources um, or mm. data re- resources that they are not yet necessarily telling everyone about.
1: There's so much hidden data in academia. It's uh, <laughs> it's a huge resource, and there's there's still a very uh, I don't know what the word is, Pe- people don't want to share it necessarily because it's your guarantee to getting publications and you're incentivized to publish and all this sort of stuff. So, yeah, I, I sympathize I uh, used to I work in, in the area and it's like it can be very tricky collaborating until you've got like an agreement ironed out and all this sort of stuff.
2: Yeah, I will say that there's um yeah, obviously there's there's legal issues and stuff around things like that, but also and if any general uh, any academics are out there listening to this, that much like everything in academia, there's often stuff that is super interesting to lay audiences that academics are holding onto because they think it's boring. Um <laughs> and that's as true of data as about almost uh, as a lot of other stories. Um so yeah, if there are academics listening sitting on a great data set, we'd love to hear from you. Yeah, just check it up on GitHub. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, iron out your um, legal status first. But yeah,
0: and when you're talking about collating all that data, and they're not necessarily being an official source you can go to, what's the part you play when questioning if it's trustworthy? Like where the data is coming from, what methodology was used to get it? Do you have a sort of checklist that you go through before you decide to use it within a story?
1: I mean, it, it depends on the data like with deaths in custody, we were relying on coronial inquest documents mostly. So that was pretty, mostly pretty straightforward. Um, some of the media reporting was trickier. All the very recent deaths are always uh, reported in the media before there's an inquest, obviously. Um, so that, that can be harder. And then it's just making an editorial assessment much like you would with a normal news story, I guess, and just weighing up what detail is reliable and what what should be included for editorial reasons and all that sort of stuff. But I mean other projects, it's a bit more straightforward. Like we we did this one counting um pork barreling or like election spending, I guess. You can't call it all of it pork barreling necessarily, but election campaign promises. Let's just <laughs> let's just call it that. Uh, during the election. And that was really that was straightforward. That was just like, you know, if someone makes a promise, we write it down and then we put put some details around it, you know. Big spreadsheet. Um, but yeah, I, I imagine Juliet might have had some issues with the early deaths stuff coming from the media sources and all that sort of thing.
3: Oh, God, totally. Um, I, yeah, uh, well, in terms of tracking things, like one thing is to say what I said at the start was we bring together the fragments of data and information that are technically, but maybe not practically available right so you you're not promising that it's a totally comprehensive complete data set you're saying this is we're bringing together what's out there so it's a different sort of promise um so that's one way to do it but yeah like one i mean one thing for instance with covid data at the moment is you do get to a point where the veracity of the data is is just sort of undermining the project so it's kind of like at what stage you know is even reporting cases connected with reality at all you know and therefore the different sorts of analyses you want to do from there like the big one is the hospitalization rate um and that That was always the really challenging one, I felt, because that that was always the important one because that that led to this question of whether or not the health system would be overrun. And at the start of the Delta outbreak in Sydney, the hospitalisation rate was high. It was like 14%. But we didn't know that in the time. We knew that maybe six or eight weeks later from the New South Wales Health Surveillance Reports. But there were all of these issues with how many cases are there really? How many people are actually going to hospital? Um, what sort of lag time frame do you want to use to calculate the hospitalisation rate? And I tried asking heaps of experts and never really got a particularly clear answer. It was just like factoring a bit of a lag. But all of these sorts of denominators and numerators that shift around, yeah, like I think that's that's the big sort of issue is always asking, uh, just kind of critically questioning the, the data itself because, um, and, you know, Mona Chalabi, you know, in in the US, she kind of makes this point that because people see data and its numbers made by a computer, people think it's facts like it's the truth when actually there are all of these different issues embedded in it, in it, biases, humans, all of this, and that's one reason why she likes to do the illustrations.
1: Yeah, and there was, I mean, like the international comparisons was and is still a huge issue because, totally. I mean, some countries have been accused of basically faking data other countries aren't faking it, but they they're using like radically different testing regimes and like yeah. ways of counting it and all this stuff. So, but you know, you get aggregating websites that put all these numbers together and put them side by side with not necessarily all that information in place. And um yeah, then you get people comparing these countries and going, Why is this one so great? Why aren't we better than why aren't we better? etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. But you you don't really know what's going on and if it's a good comparison and all this sort of stuff
3: oh absolutely and that happened just recently you know with this issue of australia has the most cases in the world it's like i don't think so right like it's like when the uh, we're one of the only countries still offering free pcr um you know mandatory reporting of rats but that that in itself is an interesting tracking project but you can see how you move from the quantitative to the qualitative pretty quickly right like it would be nice just to have a list of how the countries are reporting testing. I'm sure it's somewhere.
0: And moving to the data visualisation and how you present that data to your audiences, Wes, you create infographics, animations, even cartoons to explain really complex topics. How do you decide what, when a story would benefit from a visualisation and how do you go about deciding how to present that data?
2: Uh, that's a really good question and it really depends on what I mean obviously it really depends on what the topic is um I think probably like everyone here and probably all journalists um, it does depend sometimes on personal interest <laughs> it depends on whether something would work. it comes to illustration or something like that would work abstractly in a way that would be best served by that um so for instance even last week we had one as our uh, you know various electricity grids are collapsing uh we had just a really simple kind of um illustrated this is what the grid is um when you're talking about the grid um something like that's really it's not really data journalism in that case it's just explanatory um the one that comes to mind is something a bit interesting and out of the box is we did a comic on lone actor terrorism, um, based on a, a, a report um, out of Europe, um, and ultimately it was a work, I didn't necessarily immediately think about it this way, but ultimately it was kind of data visualization, um, it broke down kind of what the real, what the the most likely um, Picture of a terrorist in uh, Europe during a certain period was likely to be um, how to address it, what you know, what the background was, etc. Um, you know, and you know, to, to cut a long story short, it's probably it's probably going to be uh, a right wing um, white terrorist, not what people generally assume when they think of a lone actor terrorist. Um, so that one was like a little bit outside of the box. It all depends on time as much as anything else. Um, if it's going to be a short period of time, and I think that's probably true of all of us here, it's going to probably be a chart and it's going to be super, super simple and quick and uh, follow our style guides and <laughs> get out there quickly. Um, if it's going to be something a bit more um, long term and actually about visual storytelling um, and have to get a whole bunch of data, some of which nobody will, like only one person will ever be specifically interested in, which is a hard thing, Um you know, things that hide behind tooltips or you need to click uh, expand an accordion or something like that to find. Um, maybe only a really small percentage of the audience will go there, but they should be able to find it if you've got that data. Um, so we did a big project last year called Flora Fauna Fire, last year? Year before last, um, about the bushfires. It has been a weird long two years. Um, the recovery from the bushfires. And it both took in the extent of the fire path uh, and where most of Australia's uh, endangered animals were to show, you know, it was massive overlap. Um, and then the 119 species that the, the government panel had broken down. And we we actually did additional work getting people to do 119 analyses of um, each of these specific species um, and then map each of where their, their actual habitats were. Um, there's a lot of Galaxias fish, if you're interested. Um, they all look exactly the same, but they're very different. Um, and that one necessarily had to be kind of a large storytelling project. Um, and it, it, it paid off. But, you, yeah, I think sometimes you make decisions based on where it's worth putting the labour, um, what's important. Um, yeah, and those are what, what really drives the decisions. If you've got something that's perfect, um, and it just is going to work so well as a simple animation, like 800,000 years of climate data was an animation we did. Um, then, yeah, it, it just is going to sing out to you. And, but other things are driven by importance as much as anything, as, as far as we're concerned.
0: And you mentioned there the work kind of choosing a project depending on how much time you can give it or like how much time you can give to specific projects. Mm-hmm. What impact does that workload pressure or, in, in some cases, economic pressure have on your ability to take on, on projects, on data journalism projects? Juliet, you mentioned before that you have this website that you wanted to create but didn't have um, the space, I guess, so you've created it on your own. Could you tell us a bit about what impacts that workload and economic pressure can have?
3: Oh well, yeah. I mean, it started because the newsroom uh, couldn't support it; couldn't support that that work of manually tracking the cases. Um, and so that's why um, volunteers ended up doing it. And you know, thank God for people like Wes and Nick who would use it and acknowledge it, and that sort of helped to give it give the different sites and COVID-19 data is not the only one by any stretch, but we all kind of, we earned people's trust. Um, and I guess what happened was, I mean, in, in my case, the public funded it. So um, as soon as like, um, you know, like a quarter of a million sort of people visited the site on a weekend I was like oh Jesus I better put some ads on this or something and then I couldn't because it's all iframes. Um, and so I put a donate button on and people scrolled to the bottom of that website and donated like people are incredible and so that locked me in for the for the long term so there was a hunger for it and then people funded it you could say covid is like in its own category, you know, it's sui generis. But maybe it's not. Like I'm kind of willing to bet that people want that sort of um quick, like close to, you know, close to real-time projection and editorial free uh data in a few different topics as well. Um, and that's a sort of bet that I want to make in the next sort of 12 months, but I don't anticipate. That being supported by any individual major mainstream news organization, except possibly the Guardian, would be the only ones who would be <laughs> who would think it, who would think that sort of way, you know. So yeah,
1: yeah it depends on the project. <laughs> um, but you know, there, there's been a long history of like open source and kind of community collaboration with this sort of stuff, which is always good. Yeah, um, like Open Australia did a yeah. lot of do and have done a lot of very good things. Um, you know, they've kind of brought together volunteers for all sorts of things like transcribing Hansard and like getting developer applications in front of people, making all of that accessible and um, you know, lo- lots and lots of things. So yeah, there's there's a lot of good work out there done by like volunteers and community groups and all that sort of stuff as well.
2: Yeah, it's that's funny that um we talk about other forms of journalism as being something that people will just do because like, you know, it's a big problem obviously for funding journalism, but they'll just do some people will just do it because it's important. And, you know, I thank you, Juliet, for your project earlier on because I think it was one of those things when when it came on, I had been saying for a few days, like Oh, I'm just getting so tired of trying to collate everything across like five different def- definitions of what covid is and and what a case is and stuff like that and yeah it was one of those things where oh yeah like brilliantly filled the niche um and but yeah like at the, at the time I was also a little bit like this is a labor of love why would someone do this for nothing <laughs> um, so yeah I think I think it's you know data journalism is obviously like many forms of journalism something that some people myself included. I've definitely done stuff on, you know, when I'm meant to be on break anyway. Um, We'll do anyway because it's important.
0: So I, I noticed some researchers at University of Melbourne spoke with a number of data journalists in 2019 about the evolution of data journalism. And their research stated that there has been a shift from interactive stories where readers can explore stories themselves towards narrative explanatory stories and that research came out in 2019 so I'm curious if you've noticed a shift since then or if you agree with that shift from sorry exploratory to explanatory Nick have you have you noticed that
1: uh yeah I think I know what they're talking about so um, yeah I mean cer- certainly earlier on in data journalism there was a, a real like tendency to just get data sets and do a a minimum amount of stuff and put them online um and you know make some charts encourage people to download the actual raw data and then share it and it was it was kind of interesting it was like certainly in the early days of the guardians data blog which is actually quite a long time ago now they would do that sort of thing and um they would actually put up stuff that other people made as well like real kind of collaborative diy sort of stuff and then like the earlier interactives were definitely a bit more exploratory people would click around and use a lot of drop down menus and all that sort of thing and then um scrolly telling happened so like i don't know if it started with new york times and snowfall and whatever that was but you know it certainly popularized it a lot and so now, now there's like more of a tendency towards like a, a real sort of guided narrative through um, through the data visualization um, when you've got the resources, of course, because it, it does take a, a bit more development work to actually do this. Um, so then, yeah, instead of people just finding stuff that they're interested in, they they will be guided through the interesting things. Um, But you don't have to do one or the other. You can do both. Like you can have the exploratory bit at the end after you've told people what you think the interesting things are or the important things are or vice versa. Like sometimes you just – we often will make an interesting map, for example, stick it at the top of the article and say, here's this interesting map, but then we'll have like a bit more of an article below it just to explain some of it and point out interesting things. But, yeah, certainly – I I think that's true, that it it has changed a bit over time and now there is more of a tendency towards, like, analysis and guiding people through it.
0: And, I mean, Wes, that's part of what you do with creating those explanations, as you mentioned, with the bushfire recovery and creating, like, a a narrative-focused story. Have you noticed that there's a different interest in audiences having that versus more exploratory, here's the data for you to look at?
2: Yeah, we definitely try and stay away from making stuff too exploratory or making that the only reason we're offering um you know because if it's a map or something like that um that is a specific form of uh data people are most most likely to look up their own home and then go away. Um <laughs> uh I think yeah, we definitely had a bit of a sea change of like a few years ago because I mean, I think it's been just debunked now, but there was this kind of story that went around that someone had done analysis on New York Times interactives and found that 95% of people or something like that never clicked a tooltip. Um, <laughs> and so if you're hiding data behind a tooltip or something else, then you're basically not giving people important information. Um which I agree with to some extent, and it definitely drove the way and drives away a little bit about how we do things don't make it hard for people to find the important information, yeah, so definitely kind of err on the side of storytelling um but yeah, I think there are definitely times when you need, and especially because we're uh, we're so often dealing with. Uh, research where someone has gone to that minute detail and they have a very specific area of information, uh, knowledge, Um, and what Nick was saying there about doing the storytelling and then taking them to the, like, the explanatory and then taking them to the exploratory at the end, that's exactly what the Flora Fauna fauna Fire project did. Um, You know, we did all of the, like, this is what happened. Here's here's links to a bunch of stories about individual animals um, and how they've recovered. Um, And now, if you'd like to explore all of the um, the different kinds of birds and frogs and stuff like that that have been directly affected, you can, um, you know, if you're a frog guy, you can read all the frog stories. Um, yeah, I, th- I, th- I think it definitely pays to err on the side of storytelling for most readers personally, but, um, yeah, you do have to, you still have to allow some kind of explore, exploration for those other people.
0: And I'll end the interview with a nice, big, broad question. But where are we at with data journalism in Australia and what do you think is the next big step that we'll be taking? Juliet? I'll go to you first.
3: Hmm. I reckon um, COVID has changed a lot of things. Um, I think it's changed people's awareness of data i mean i was essentially a digital journalist before covid but now i'm comfortable with the term data journalist um but i think people's i hope people's expectations have changed um like i'm probably too optimistic in that respect but um for for example there was um uh, I mean, I, I love 730 report, right? So like I, I don't, I'm not throwing shade, but do you remember that there was a story about um Victoria and New South Wales being given unfair allocations of Pfizer? Um, and that was a data story, right? Like it's about how much Pfizer is each state getting, and they had it but it was like we have this data and we're not showing you the data and it was and everyone and so Twitter sort of went berserk about it because we'd gotten so used to if you've got the data, sh- show it, right, and if you've made a calculation, show us the calculation and it was really weird not to have have that. So I really hope that the big major step we're taking is towards a sort of radical transparency um, <laughs> And, um, yeah. And, uh, like if you say it's based on data that, you know, I've got so many examples of this, I could go on and on, but if it says data show, then there's a little hyperlink and you can click on that and see the data without it just saying data show. So yeah, he's hoping.
0: And Wes, what do you think about the next step for data journalism in Australia?
2: I think um, I go into minds of being like a little as an overall thing, a little bit pessimistic and being like, well, I'm also a cartoonist. So I'm like, there's like eight of us who are employed in Australia in some capacity. um, And it feels a little bit the same about data journalists, to be honest. So I I picked two good areas of journalism to to work in. Um, But I think. On a like a, a grander scale, like I think there is a much better data awareness from journalists. It's no longer. It seems like it's no longer okay to kind of be like, "Well, I'm a journalist. I don't really do the numbers thing." Um, it's much more integrated. People are much more comfortable, yeah, grabbing the chart to put into their articles and and showing that data if they're going to say that, or even just putting it in the para and saying, you know, saying it with some kind of defensibility. And I think that's a really positive thing. It doesn't have to all be big data projects. I think just having better data education um, for readers. Um, and COVID's probably been a great thing for that. It's also, you know, we've got to iron out some of the nuances, like we were talking about before. Um, people are more interested in seeing the line chart or the, you know, just those simple things. Um, it's always intriguing to me, um, maybe because I find data interesting and I assume no one else does. Um, that some of our best Instagram posts for the conversation and Twitter posts are a chart, a really simple chart that is look, the one I was talking about before that's in our style guide that's simple and we had to do within like half an hour or an hour and it just goes off. You know, our census stuff, even though we're all covering the census in the last couple of days, our census
1: post has done very well and, you know, that's great.
0: (laughs) And Nick, to you?
1: Yeah, I mean, I agree with most of that. I think you know one of the one of the trends that has also been happening is like which has touched on a bit is the mainstreaming of data journalism so i mean for example with the guardian uk they used to uh maintain the data blog for example but now they don't really um because the data stuff is just in normal news categories and or whatever else um and i i think that's become more widespread and certainly with covid like as juliet was saying you know we had Casey Briggs on the TV showing line charts all the time, which we never really had before outside of, you know, um, the economics business segment on the news. So I think that really changed things a bit. And um, maybe it will continue. I'm not sure. I mean, Casey did some stuff with the election, so possibly we will see more of that. I mean, I, I would just like to see outside of what i think is going to happen i, I would love to see more radical transparency <laughs> of course um but i'd also like to see people doing more experimental stuff which is hard uh, given you know economic and time pressures but like you know things like that i would really love to work on but can't is stuff like turning data into audio for example which would be great for a radio show Um, And I've, I've had worked on some of this at work and I've worked on some of it outside of work because it's like interesting and experimental, but there's no like necessary kind of story that I can then take to my boss and say, oh, you know, here you go. It's the deadline now. Here's here's the thing. It's just all kind of experimental. Um, So, I mean, yeah, it'd be great to see more experimental stuff supported and done in some way. And, you know, there's been a, kind of increase in sort of grants and philanthropic funding which I hope will support some stuff like that but um, I guess I guess we'll see.
0: And on that note I'd like to thank Nick Evershed, Juliet O'Brien and Wes Mountain for being on Fourth Estate. Thank you all for taking the time out of a very busy census period to chat about data journalism. Thank Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And thanks for listening to the program. This edition was recorded at the studios of 2 Ser and heard across the country on the Community Radio Network. Fourth Estate is produced with the assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. Thanks to the foundation for their continuing support. Make sure you subscribe to Fourth Estate on your favourite podcast app so you can hear us talk about media, politics and a lot in between. We'll be back with more next week, but in the meantime, you can stay in touch with us on Twitter. Our handle is Fourth Estate AU. Thanks to our executive producer, Anthony Dockrell. I'm Marlene Even. Thanks for listening.